What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the High Tempo Fast Break. Today, I am here for kind of an emergency podcast. We have to talk about two major events that have happened in the city of Detroit on New Year's weekend. Want to give a happy New Year's to everyone. It is New Year's Eve morning as I am recording this. Now, I originally planned on doing a podcast about strictly the Detroit Pistons today, talking about how the Pistons broke the streak. And I was planning on doing this before they even played the game against the Raptors because I had a question I want to ask, and I will bring it up later when I get to it. Um, But if I'm being honest, like I know this sounds so easy to say now that it's already happened, but after the way that the game against the Boston Celtics ended on Thursday night, I knew that they were going to win one of their next two games against Toronto and or Houston. I kind of already talked about that uh, when they lost a game a, while, a week ago on a podcast, that it was going to be one of those two games. And after how the Boston game went, I just knew like they were going to win one of these two games. So I was comfortable making the podcast, even if they lost to Toronto. It's like, okay, they're going to beat Houston anyways. And also, I talked about how I wanted to do a high-tempo fast break Jeopardy episode or 25 words or less haven't gotten any of that set up because I wanted to be like I was going to try and record that today actually but I needed to do this instead because last night my podcast plans were flipped they were changed because of how the Detroit Lions versus Dallas Cowboys football game ended it was going to be such a piston strictly episode where I'm talking that a little bit at the end about how the game went because I just assumed that nothing this newsworthy was going to occur in that football game that made me had to change the whole title of the podcast, change the whole topic. I'm not going to talk about the Pistons till probably halfway through this thing because of what happened in this Lions-Cowboys game. It is Detroit versus everybody. If you're unaware, which you're not if you're listening to this, everyone knows how that game ends. The Lions come down the field after being down by seven points with no timeouts, two-minute drill, one of the greatest two-minute drills I've seen Jared Goff have as a Detroit Lion really reminisced Matthew Stafford Lions days. March down the field very quickly, get a touchdown to Amon Ross St. Brown, which was a great play from him. And we were kind of discussing this, me and my friends, as we were watching this game, like, are they going to go for two if they score? And I kind of just kept saying, like, shut up. Like, let's just wait till they score. And then we'll, you know, kind of discuss whether or not they're going to go for it. I don't want to talk about, you know, if they score when they've only scored one touchdown this game. Like, they haven't come easy. Now, once they did score, it was like, okay, How do you go for it? So taking away what we know, right? Let's take away what we know of how three different two-point conversion attempts happen. One of them successful taken away. The other two non-successful. Well, I guess the penalty on Dallas doesn't really count as anything. Taking away what you know from what happened. I am one that agrees with going for two from Dan Campbell. Now, I, I... I'm not a guy that's like, if you kick, you're scared. You know, like I, if he would have kicked, I would have been totally cool with it. But I agree with going for it, and I would have done the same thing for a few different reasons. One, you've already clinched the division. So, like, potentially, it's not like this is a, like, must win where it's like, you know, you need to go to overtime to see what happens. And if you don't get this two-point conversion, like, like it is a huge detriment to the season if you, like, don't get this two-point, and it's because of that. So I think that played into it a little bit. Like, we've already clinched the division. You know, this is kind of just a, a statement win if it happens. But I think the bigger reason is going out on your own terms, right? You would much rather lose to your decision than lose to a 50-50 coin flip. 
I mean, let's just be honest. If Dallas wins the coin toss, they win the football game. They're going to come down and score unless our defense makes a big play, which I think our defense, like, didn't play that bad. I think the pass rush was pretty solid, and they blitzed pretty effectively. Um, but CeeDee Lamb was just, he, he torched. Our secondary had a very poor performance, which has been a common theme throughout this season. So I respect Dan Campbell deciding to go for the two-point conversion to win the football game. Screw overtime. The rules are, are weird. Now, if we would have won the toss, we had all the momentum, but it's it's it doesn't matter. It's a coin toss. You're in AT&T Stadium. You're in Dallas. Like, you're playing in Jerry's world. You have to go out on your own terms, so I completely respect that. Taylor Decker catches the two-point conversion. All Lions fans celebrate for what seems to be like a minute at least. A while of celebration. I was so excited, and I see the flag. And honestly, when I saw the flag, I wasn't even that concerned. Because it was so far after the play was over that I was like, okay, like somebody just celebrated too hard. You know, maybe the sideline came out on the field and it was some, whatever. It's going to be something addressed on the kick, which I guess I was a little worried because it was like 25 seconds left. And it was like, okay, this is going to affect the kick now. Like what's going to happen here with this? And then the illegal touching comes in. And Taylor Decker did not report as an eligible receiver and all of Lions fans are listening to this, all of Lions fans in the world that have a cell phone, that have a TV, all know the footage that has come out after the football game. I mean, they showed it on, on the ESPN broadcast. Troy Aikman and Joe Brook bring in this the ESPN guy. I completely forget his name. And he himself explains the situation. And they show that angle of Panay Sewell and Taylor Decker talking to Brad Allen. And then Dan Skipper comes up running, running up. And as Dan Skipper runs up, Brad Allen walks away. It's like, okay, that's kind of odd. Like, you said Dan Skipper was reported as eligible. Dan Skipper lined up at right guard with Panay Sewell lined up at right tackle. And then Amon Ross St. Brown comes in, and they just have this jumbo package. Dan Skipper cannot be an eligible receiver when he's lined up at right guard. He's covered up by a lineman and a wide receiver to his right. He has two other guys to his right on the line of scrimmage. So if he was the eligible receiver, then there's two flags. There's an illegal formation as well on the Lions. However, he was not. Taylor Decker was the eligible receiver in theory, you know, supposed to be. And I see a lot of people on Twitter like, oh, it was an illegal formation because Taylor Decker's covered. No, he's not covered up. Josh Reynolds is off the football. He's lined up not on the line of scrimmage. And it was a legal formation if it was called the right way like it was supposed to, like Taylor Decker was supposed to be the eligible receiver, not Dan Skipper. Now, there is a world where I understand the confusion, right? Now, I'm, this is not this is not the world I'm living in, but I'm just I'm trying to play devil's advocate. I'm trying to be as non-biased as possible because this is such a like Detroit versus everybody moment, and this is the Lions always get screwed over by the refs. Refs versus the Lions, like it's all this is the typical thing. But I've never been a fan of playing the victim which is what us Detroit sports fans like to do a lot, especially, you know, especially guys that are Michigan football fans and Detroit football fans. Like playing the victim is something that is a common theme, and I've always avoided that. I, I don't like being the victim. So let me give some context. Dan Skipper reports as an eligible receiver quite frequently for the Detroit Lions. He, they bring him as an extra offensive lineman so he can move in motion, end up you know on either left or right side to be like an extra tackle jumbo package so they can run the football. It, it is something that the Lions have done all year 
Um, and Dan Skipper, he's a, you know, they've mentioned this a lot. He's a big guy. He's hard to miss. You know, when he's coming out on the field, I bet Dan Skipper reported as an eligible receiver multiple times just in this game. So there's a world where, okay, you see him coming out. I, the Brad Allen's like, okay, Skipper's the receiver. You know, there's a, there is a situation where it's just happened in that game. It's happened all season for the Detroit Lions where Dan Skipper is typically, when he comes out there, not out there to replace a lineman. He's just an extra guy, and that would make him eligible as long as he reports to the official, to the white cap. However, it shouldn't matter because Dan Campbell, in the there's a the angle from the local Fox Detroit station they who was in the end zone there. That angle has come out, either come out this morning or last night, of the Lions celebrating, you know, how long it was, like a minute, and then it zooms in on Dan Campbell freaking out because, and he continuously says to Brad Allen, I told you, I told you, I told you. And this was explained in the post-game presser with Dan Campbell, with Taylor Decker, with Dan Skipper. It starts off with Taylor Decker saying, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I go up to the white hat. I say report. He nods at me. He walks away. I catch the football and I'm reported ineligible. And I, but before I talk about the other two guys, I want to say, and even Jared Goff, major, major respect for those guys for keeping their composure. And I and I saw Glover Quinn do a video on Twitter last night talking about how, why should they have to keep their composure? Why shouldn't they be allowed to just freak out and say how bad that is? It shows how great of character these guys have. Um, Because even Goff said, like, I got to make better plays. You know, we can't bring it down to one play. I mean, you can bring it down to one play. This is one of those situations where that play changed the game. Unless Dallas comes down and scores. And the Lions fans saying that, oh, the game should be reversed. Like, that that can't happen. It it just can't. Maybe if there's zeros on the clock when they scored it. That's the only way. But hypothetically, Dallas could have came down and kicked a field goal, won the football game still. With 20 seconds on the clock. I think they had a timeout. Like... It was not over. So that the, the football game can never be switched. But it's major props to Dan Campbell, to all the other guys, for for keeping their composure in the post-game press conference. It's it's gotta be a hard thing to do. It really does. Like I, I would not be able to. I would be I was freaking out and I couldn't get over it. And I'm still not over it this morning. I'm I'm more mellowed about it. But I was so upset and I couldn't get over the fact that they messed this up so bad. Dan Skipper after the game was asked about it. And he said, I never said an effing word. Well, he said that on the field. You can see that in one of the clips. He said, I never said an effing word to the ref. And then after the game, they asked him, he said, I didn't, I never reported as eligible. He comes out onto the field like he does, you know, pretending or whatever to be reported as eligible, but Taylor Decker is the eligible one. So everyone moves over a spot on the line. If you get what I'm saying, like Dan Skipper would not be eligible because he lined up in a guard spot. He can't be eligible. He's covered up by an extra lineman to each side of him. Typically, when he reports as eligible, he is on the end of the line, legally being an eligible receiver. Dan Campbell, when he keeps saying, I told you, I told you, this was explained how after the game, he said that in the pregame, they tell the referees when something like this is going to happen. They told the referees that this was going to happen. I see a lot of Lions, or not Lions fans, just people in general saying like, well, obviously the refs got confused. Why is Sewell and 
talking with Decker and why does uh why does Dan Skipper come running up to them as well? It's too confused the defense. It's too it's you know they don't want them to know what's going on here with who's eligible. Now obviously it gets told to them who's eligible, but still it gets told to them and then the ball gets snapped 5 10 seconds later. Like it's not a lot of time to adjust to figure out who it is. And typically also when they do this, it's not like one of them's going out for a pass most of the time. It's just to block. So it I understand that it gets told to the defense, but it's too confused, Dallas. When Dan Skipper is always the one that is reported as eligible when he comes in, they, they wanted to make it seem like that's what's going to happen again, but then Decker is the eligible receiver. And this was explained by Dan Campbell that in the pregame, it was told to the officials. He said, I explained these things to a T in the pregame. He lets them know that that is coming. And when it does come, and it is still screwed up from the officials, Despite being explained, that is inexcusable. It makes you think. It makes you wonder about what is going on. It's so hard for things like this to happen and not think that something else is behind it. How do you screw that up that badly? When it is explained, when there is a clear image of Paul, of Brad Allen, excuse me, nodding his head at Taylor Decker. I mean, if you zoom in on that clip, he nods at Decker and then walks off and doesn't even acknowledge Dan Skipper. I'm not sure if he even saw him walking up to the group of them. How does that happen? You're telling me that Dan Campbell, with the game on the line, the guy who runs the most craziest trick plays, Ben Johnson, one of the most creative offensive coordinators in all of NFL, with the football game on the line, going for two instead of tying the game up, and they decide to throw it to an offensive lineman, didn't have him report as eligible? Are you crazy to think that they didn't do the most simplest task out of the whole play? You want to know what's hard? Actually completing a pass to an offensive lineman on a two-point conversion to win a game on the road against one of the best teams in the NFL with one of the best home records in the NFL. They win at an average of 25 points per game at home, the Dallas Cowboys do this year. And we go for two by throwing it to our left tackle. And you want to try to tell me, the referees, that they reported the wrong guy as the eligible receiver. You are out of your goddamn mind if you believe that. And and this is it's just what it's what's so frustrating. It's the blame on the players. You're gonna blame Taylor Decker slash Dan Skipper for messing that play up, referees. That's what that's how it was explained to Dan Campbell and coaching staff. That it was his guys that screwed up the play, even though it was executed to perfection. But the simplest part that happens pre-snap was messed up. Get rid of that. That, that Miss me with that shit, because that is ridiculous. Now, I've also seen a lot of talk about Adam Schefter this morning saying, well, they missed the, the tripping call on Peyton Hendershot. Wouldn't have, if, if that doesn't get called, then this doesn't happen. I mean, can we quit with that? That is not a game-deciding call. Amon Ross St. Brown on a third or whatever was pass interfered with. Didn't get called. I'm not I'm not complaining about that, but like this specific call with Taylor Decker is the most impactful call. Maybe second most impactful call of the year because that Kadarius Tony one also was like pretty impactful. You know, it had like one of the craziest plays I've ever seen happen out of it, and it gets called back. But that was a real thing. That play was a penalty on the Chiefs we did not do anything wrong and that's the hardest part about all of this 
that the referees can blame the Lions coaching staff and blame the players because they did it wrong. No, you guys messed this up. And we it, it really, I hate, I've never been a believer that, that anything in, is rigged. I think that there is suspicious things that happen with with gambling in in the NFL specifically with points and in spreads, you know. But but as far as deciding who wins and loses a game, it, it's hard. I, I've always hated that the, even the idea of that because it makes me as a diehard sports fan. It it makes me question like why am I a sports fan if that if you know if it's rigged. I've never been a big fan of. This is no offense to people that do, but it's just not my thing of like the WWE, like of scripted things like that. Because I'm not like a show watcher either, you know, like shows. Obviously, those are like scripted. Like I like the reality of of sports, the the questioning, like you don't know what's going to happen and neither do they. It's up to them. And to to put it in my head that it could have it, it could be decided by someone who doesn't play in the game. Oh, man, that just hurts to even think about. And I'm not saying that they they rigged this, but it just makes you think. Like, how do you mess it up that bad? Like, that's this that's the only reason why I go there. Is because for them to for me to even think that they messed up that bad, I question that. I question that you messed up that bad. That you threw the flag a good minute after the play happened. It is very questionable. And it sucks. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Rex Ryan, to Ryan Clark, to Dan Orlovsky, to every you know NFL sports media member that I've seen this morning and last night talk about how this is a disgrace and it was just the wrong call and we got screwed and it really impacts the playoff picture. I was a guy that came on this podcast two weeks ago and said that I really don't want the Lions to get the one seed. But man, like, it, I'm not the only, like, I could be the only guy that thought that way. And this, we're not going to get the one seed, obviously, but it's more about, like, the two versus three seed now. Like, we don't get that second playoff game, potentially, right? The divisional round playoff game. If all the top seeds win, the two versus three are going to play. That is such an impactful decision now on if the Lions are playing the Cowboys or the Eagles. If that's going to, like, especially if it's if it's Philly, right? If it's Philly, we have the difference between playing in Ford Field and playing in Philadelphia literally decides who's going to win the game. I've said this weeks ago, and I still believe it. The Lions do not win in Philadelphia. You can call it now. If if there is a Lions versus Philly playoff game in Philadelphia, the Lions will not win that game. But if it's in Ford Field, I feel a lot more confident, and I think they have a chance. I think they literally will not win in Philadelphia, and this game... That call on that two-point conversion just determined that. So we better hope that the, that the playoff doesn't work out in the way where we have to play Philly. That's all I'm going to say. Um, now, I do think that this is going to... Some positives that have come out of this. Very little amount of them. This is going to fuel the Lions like so hard going into the playoffs. This is going to add such an extra flair that like I don't even think we needed an extra flair. You know, there's always a world like you clinch the playoffs two week, two three weeks before the season is over. A team that hasn't done it in a while, like there's a world where we get cocky, you know. And I don't think they did because in this game they didn't. I mean, they played a tough battle. This was a really exciting game between the Lions and Cowboys, one of the best of the year, um, one of the best prime time games of the year for sure. So many big plays. I mean, the Ceedee Lamb 90 yard touchdown, Melifonwu interception, Ceedee Lamb fumble in the back of the end zone. 
Jared Goff throwing a, two interceptions. The second one was a phenomenal play uh, by the defender. I can't remember who it was. Wilson, I believe is who it was. Like, it was a, a game full of big, the Jamison Williams huge pass catch, which Jamal also left the game and didn't return, so I hope he's all good. I think he's good. I mean, he was just, like, walking around and, and jogging off, so I don't even know what the injury was. Um, but it, it was a game full of big plays. And for it to end the way that it did is so, so very unfortunate. And it's just, it's hard, man. It, it's hard to not be up here, sit up here and complain about what happened. This is different, man. This this is different than all those little flags and the little plays with the, you know, the Monday night football Trey Flowers getting called for hands to the face twice against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Like that one hurt, but like we probably still could have won the game. There's, there's there's so many other instances like you know uh, Bobby Wagner or whoever that KJ Wright on the Seahawks batting the ball at the back of the end zone on Monday Night Football I think that was Lions versus Seahawks in Seattle like that one was a, a missed call but it it doesn't hurt like this one for some reason this game specifically and thank God that they clinched a playoff spot like if this was a situation where it was kind of a if you win this game you're in if you don't it's gonna be hard you're gonna need some luck. Oh, this would be terrible. And that's that's at least that they are in the playoffs. For all the people that are upset at Dan Campbell for after the two-point conversion call, for him going for it up from the seven-yard line, and then the penalty call to going for it on the three-and-a-half-yard line, we won the game, guys. It worked. The two-point conversion play worked. And yes, the emotions are there for him. He, he told the offense that they are going for it to win this game no matter what. They're not going to rely on a coin toss. And I just said that I respect that. I get it. Going for it from the seven-yard line seems a bit egregious, but it worked. The two-point conversion play that they had drawn up to win the football game worked, and it got taken away from them. And that is the part that is so frustrating. Don't blame Dan Campbell because his decision was the right one, and it worked. So this is not him to blame. It's not the players to blame. It is strictly on the officials, and it's hard to say that because it's. It, it, I hate taking that route. But it just is what it is. All right, that's about it for Lions Talk. Let's talk about the Pistons. Before we talk about the Pistons, I do want to say that Adam Schefter reported this morning that Brad Allen and his officiating crew are not expected to be officiating any playoff games anymore. Like they were supposed to be, they no longer will be expected to officiate any playoff games, which is the NFL admitting that they got it wrong. Like that is straight up the NFL saying, these guys screwed up. This is their punishment. They won't be officiating in the playoffs. Let's tell it how it is. And I did just watch Gene Sterator, uh CBS rules analyst, break down the play. And he simply just said that it was a, a clear miscommunication between Paul. Oh my, why do I keep saying Paul Allen? That's a real person, right? Brad Allen and the rest of the Lions crew. Um, but once again, for him to tell the coach that his Paul Allen is a American computer programmer. Oh, he's like the Microsoft guy, right? Yeah, yeah. He's co-founder of Microsoft, and he owns the Seahawks. Okay, I knew Paul Allen was like, I was definitely recognized that name. Um, anyways, um, but yeah, for, for him to say that a, what, nine, eight-year NFL veteran and Taylor Decker made a-esque rookie mistake, like, are, can, can we stop that? Just own up to it, man. You made the wrong call. You misinterpreted what was going on. It was not them. It was you. I'm going to end it there. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, the NFL playoff picture and what's going on in week 17 a little bit. It just kicked off. I'm watching Red Zone as I'm recording this. 
But let's move on to the Detroit Pistons because the Detroit Pistons won a basketball game. The longest losing streak in NBA history is now tied between the Detroit Pistons and the Philadelphia 76ers. Now the 76ers won spreads across two years. It was from 2012-2013 season into the 2013-2014 season. So yes, the Pistons do only longest active losing streak in a specific season, in a single season. But the longest ever in general is not just owned by the Pistons. So cool, we'll take that. What a great day this could have been, by the way, for the city of Detroit. The Pistons breaking the record. And the Lions going into Dallas and winning, but it wasn't. I have a question for you guys, and this was the question I referred to in the beginning of the episode, and this was going to be like the lead. I I think I was actually going to title the episode this, and I'm not going to anymore. I have had to do a lot of thinking over this Pistons losing streak, right? A lot of ideas have popped in my head. Here's something. Here's a statement. This actually isn't even a question. This is a statement. I am under the belief that I think the losing streak was secretly beneficial for the Detroit Pistons. Secretly beneficial for the Detroit Pistons. I'm not saying it was a good thing, but I think if we look over everything, I think low-key, this was almost good for them. That sounds terrible because the season's over, right? Like, yeah, we we won a game, but we're 3-29. Now, unless we go on the longest active winning streak ever, which I think is 30-some games set by the Warriors, I think, in, in the 73-9 season. I know that you, it, the Lakers did have it at one point. It was a Lakers record for sure. The Milwaukee Bucks went on a pretty long streak too uh, after the Warriors' big season. But either way, they're not going to do that, so it doesn't matter. So the season's over. So how can you say this was secretly beneficial? Well, I think there's a couple reasons, right? Let's start off with this. Think of if you're a Detroit Pistons fan, right? Think of how much national, and if you're like a social media Pistons fan, like I am, you know, I'm on social media a lot. Um, I watch, you know, NBA shows, NBA podcasts. Think about a time where the Pistons were talked about as much as this season ever in your life. Now, for me, I was not around in the, I mean, I was around. I was just a very little kid. Uh, when the Pistons won it all, and when the Pistons went to six straight Eastern Conference Finals in the mid-2000s. So, I I believe, I would assume that if social media was as big as it is now, then they would have had more national media attention, because they were a powerhouse. You know, obviously, they were a fun team. They got in fights. Like, they they were they were what meet social media would want, you know? But it wasn't as big of that time. The Detroit Pistons... Uh, Blake Griffin, Andre Drummond era, like had a little bit, like, you know, they were covered, but like, they were just a mid team that had like a, a, an aging star. That was, he really a star. He was kind of just like a highlight reel, but when he got to the Pistons, he wasn't so much a highlight reel in Blake Griffin, you know, by the way, it is one 12 right now. I'm watching red zone and so many people have already scored. I mean, Taylor scored DJ Moore just scored. It is snowing a crap ton uh, it's Soldier Field in Chicago right now, which is super fun to watch. Obviously, by the time this comes out, all these games are going to be over. But let me get back to the point I was talking about in the Pistons. There has never been a time where they've been covered this much nationally. I mean, every game, the Pistons are being posted about. Now, obviously, it's in poor light. Or really is it? So here is the first reason. That game against the Boston Celtics, 
the other night, the one they lost. They're up by 19 at halftime against a team that is 14-0 at home, the best team in the NBA. Not just at home in general, they're the best team in the NBA. They're up 19 at halftime. That game across, that game was like literally could have been the most entertaining game of the season, of the whole NBA season. And the worst team in the NBA was playing in it. That game had game seven energy. Like it was a battle in that game. The amount of hustle that was going on on both sides. Like Jaden Ivey was all over the place trying to get offensive rebounds. Even Alec Burks was doing his job. Derek White, the absolute hustle machine, like he was everywhere. Porzingis was hitting clutch shot after clutch shot. Jason Tatum was, I mean, he had the most inefficient 30-point game I've ever seen. Like that game, and Cade Cunningham, like, you know, who had went crazy in the first half, struggled in the second half. Pistons couldn't make a shot down the stretch, but then like randomly Isaiah Livers would hit a shot, and Alec Burks would randomly hit a shot. Like that game was so entertaining to watch, and they've had multiple games like that. So my first point is why this was secretly beneficial is this Pistons team has no, like, stakes games. They didn't play in the in-season tournament. They haven't played in the playing tournament. They obviously haven't played in the playoffs, like this group of guys. Boyan Bogdanovich is, like, the only guy with legitimate playoff experience. Even Alec Burks has never been, like, a key role guy on a good playoff team. So my first point is they got to play in some high-stakes games. No one wanted to be the team to lose to the Detroit Pistons. Like, after after the streak got to, like, 15, it was like, oh, we can't lose this game. Even when the guys were sitting, like, the you know, the Celtics sat Jalen Brown and the Jazz sat Lowry Markkinen. Those games were played with so much intensity. And I know that it sucks that we lost all of them. But once again, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. I'm trying to bring some positivity out of this because it's been such a bad season. They had They finally got to play some games that kind of felt like they had some meaning to them. They weren't just every other regular season game. Every team was coming into this game with an extra reason to not lose to the Detroit Pistons. And you could say that helped them. Because like I said, NBA Twitter, not just Pistons fan, were like, this this Pistons-Celtics game is crazy good. Like this is such a fun game. This feels like a Final Four game right now. Like with the, the intensity that is going on in it. So that's my first reason. The second reason <clears throat> ties into what I was talking about before with the with the national media landscape, right? You're like, oh, they're being covered, you know, the most they ever have been in my life, but it's for it's in bad light. And yes, I do agree that agree with that kind of, but for one reason and one reason only, I think that it has been beneficial. And is for this guy over his last seven games, Cade Cunningham is averaging 31 and a half points, eight assists. Five rebounds, as well as only three turnovers per game, which the eight to three turnover ratio, which is simplified to no, that's just eight to three still, which is not it's definitely not bad at all. Has shot fifty five percent from the field and just under fifty percent from three. Fifteen of thirty two in those seven games. Someone can do the math for me on that. I believe that is just under fifty percent in those seven games. Cade Cunningham in the last seven has been phenomenal and has been covered at a at the highest stage. The world has gotten to see how good Cade Cunningham is. It's not just Pistons fans. At the beginning of the losing streak, we were like, man, Cade has got to play better to get us a win. And then it was like, oh, everyone else needs to play better because Cade is playing so good. He is doing everything he possibly can to get us a win, and we can't. That Brooklyn Nets game 
Another game that just had Game 7 intensity to it. And Cade Cunningham would not let the Pistons go away. It seemed like they were just losing. They get down by 10 and Cade rattles off and cuts it to 4. And then they're down by 8 again. But then Cade gets another couple buckets and they're down by 3. Like, he would not let him go away in that game. The world got to see how good he is. Because a lot of people at the beginning of the losing streak who weren't watching the Pistons were kind of just like, man. And just looking at the stats because Cade turned the ball over a lot and wasn't very efficient. We're like, oh, man, Cade Cunningham. Like, is he is he kind of, like, falling off a little bit? Like, is he not this star guy that we kind of thought he could be? That has gotten flipped in the last... Like, I've seen people, like, you know, they're saying, like, Cade is still the best guy in his class. Yeah, duh. Like, Scotty Barnes is is good. Shangun is having a phenomenal season. Evan Mobley is probably the most reliable guy. But Cade Cunningham has the highest ceiling and is currently... Still one of the best guys, if not the best currently out of his class and definitely has the highest ceiling. And we just need to start talking about where he's at in the league in general. I mean, he's putting up all-star-esque numbers. He's not going to be an all-star, obviously, because our team sucks. But, like, finally, like I just said, he's averaging 32 points over his last seven. But even just on the season now, like, those, his splits are getting up. Like, he is really working them back. He's averaging 23.5 points per game, 7.3 assists, 4 rebounds per game, and the, the, the efficiency is getting better. He's averaging 45% from the field and 35% from three. Four turnovers per game, which the turnover thing has been good. He, last night, he had 30 points, 10 assists, zero turnovers. First piss to do that since Chauncey Billups. Since Mr. Big Shot. So, I think that the, the, the national coverage of the Pistons has been beneficial because it has exposed the world to Cade Cunningham. Now they know. Cade is him. He kind of has been him, but now, like, everyone knows. Like, it's confirmed. Like, okay, it's not just Pistons fans that know. Cade is him. And that is a... I'm super happy to be able to say that because I never jumped the ship on Cade, but it was always a worry. Like, oh, man, what if Cade just isn't, like, the best guy? Like, now what do we do? What is the plan now? Like, because he just kind of has to be the guy, or else, or else what are we going to do? And he is still the guy, and obviously, they, they moves should still be made, by the way. I'm not, like, celebrating the Pistons. I'm not celebrating them getting a win like as, okay, now we're fine. Like now they're going to go on some big win streak. But I like moves still have to be made for sure. And I see that Monty Williams hired somebody off his staff. Cool. Whatever. Like I do think that like I would be, I, I genuinely would be surprised if they went on another like bigger losing streak, like more than like four games. Just because they were in such a black hole that getting a win got them out. Like it was so hard to get one particular win, just one. Now that they got it, it's going to be a lot easier. Teams aren't going to play them as hard. It'll be a lot easier to get wins. Like, I expect them to have a a near, like, 500 record over their next 10 games. Maybe 4-6 and six type of, like, I hope so. Um, but we'll see. Obviously, moves still have to be made, like I said. And I think the last good reason, the, the two top ones I think are most important. I think the Cade Cunningham one is, like, the, the big reason why I said, like, this was low-key a good thing. Just because, like... Everybody got to watch the Pistons. And everyone who watched them also, from what I see from non-Pistons fans, are like, how did the Pistons lose this many games in a row? Like, Cade is good. Ivy's been playing well. Duran has been a beast since he's come back from injury. He looks like pre-injury Duran. Kevin Knox has had a couple solid games. Bojan is still, eh. Like, but it's mainly those, like, Cade, Ivy, and Duran have played well in, in this last stretch where they've really gotten a lot of coverage. And... I think that a lot of people are still like, they still believe in this Pistons core. 
Um, Asar Thompson, obviously, like people are jumping ship on him. Don't do that. It's so early. It, they, they, they're just still trying to figure out how to utilize him. And I think Monty Williams has done a poor job of that uh, since the return of Bojan Bogdanovic to the lineup. But that's a that's something for another day. Pistons still should make a move. Um, but the last thing I think that comes out of this is you kind of like learn what you have. Like they've they've got an idea now. I think of who's here to stay and who's not. Like all those vets, those vets should all be gone, all of them. Like maybe not Bojan, just because it's kind of late now and he is like a good player. So like you'd probably want to keep him to win games. But Burks, like. These are, like, going back to the first point, these games are so important that, like, you need guys to step up in important games to get to hit shots late in the game. That's what they're here to do. Alec Burks is a career 40% three-point shooter. Has been terrible. He needs to be gone. Isaiah Livers, who we thought really could progress into this good 3 and D wing, has been really bad. He should be gone. He's not an NBA player. Like, these, you've understood who is actually needs to be in the rotation, who, like, actually can play because they're high-level games. And who can be in at the end of those games? Not those guys. James Wiseman, stop playing him, bro. Bagley is so much better than Wiseman. I don't I don't get why Wiseman plays over Bagley. And Bagley's not even good. But he's so much better than James Wiseman. Wiseman is up there for worst guys in all of the league. Like, I'm not even kidding. Why does he play over Bagley? I don't get it. But it's just nice to get a win. It's nice to get a win. But I hope it doesn't... I hope it this doesn't make them complacent to be like, oh, we finally broke the streak. Like, we don't have to make any changes now. Like, no, you still lost the most games in a row ever. Like, that should still be enough to make a freaking trade. Make a trade. Get It doesn't have to be a star trade. I agree that they should not make a star move trade. Go get two dudes that can come off the bench and actually play. That's what this team needs. All the starters have been plus minutes over the last so many games. I saw a stat. Let me pull this up, actually. So, Duncan Smith, who covers the Pistons on Twitter, at Duncan Smith NBA, tweeted out, this was before the game last night, by the way. He said, over the last five games, the Pistons have a net rating of minus 34.8 when Isaiah Livers is on the floor and a minus 2.7 when he's off. They have a minus 35.1 net rating when Alec Burks is on the floor and a plus 14.2 net rating in the 140 minutes that he is off of the floor. To be <clears throat> to put this in a better quote, uh, Cade Cunningham was at plus 0.7 when he's on the floor and a minus 37.2 when he's off the floor. Jaden Ivey is a plus 6.3 when he's on, a minus 33 when he is not. Jalen Duran uh, only played in two games over that five-game stretch, so I'm not going to say his. So it just shows like how much worse they are when Alec Burks is on the floor and Cade Cunningham's off the floor. When Jane Ivey is off the floor and Isaiah Livers is on the floor. It's terrible. Um, so yeah, but like I said, it's just nice to get a win. Uh, and we'll see if they make a move still, because they definitely should. Speaking of moves that were made, though, let's move into a little bit of generic uh, NBA talk and sports talk in general. Because a guy that the Pistons potentially could have traded for in OG Ananobi gets traded to the New York Knicks in a pretty big trade. Like, I would say this is a pretty big trade. Uh, the trade is OG Ananobi, Precious Achua, and Malachi Flynn headed to the New York Knicks in exchange for RJ Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, and the Detroit Pistons 2024 second round pick, which, if we are being honest, will be the 31st pick in the draft. 
It just will be. Like, that. that is not a lottery-based pick. It is the, whoever's the worst team gets the top pick in the second round, it'll be the Pistons, probably. If not, it'll be a 31-33. to 33. So, it's honestly, like, a it, it's one of the more valuable second-round picks. You know, like, there's been a lot of good guys drafted in the top of the second round over the last X amount of years. So, this trade, a lot of people think that the Knicks really overpaid for OG Ananobi. And I think it just kind of depends, right? I do agree that, like, you gave up a lot. And that's kind of what the Raptors wanted. And also, if you're the Knicks, like, the talk was making a splash for a big trade. And without R.J. Barrett's $23 million contract or whatever it is, how do you get to the number to match a star? Like, you have the Evan Fournier 18 mil. You're going to have to throw in, like, a Josh Hart or Dante DiVincenzo who are in that, you know, 10 to $15 million range. So, it, it's going to be interesting, but I think it just depends on what happens. Like, if, you're, if you still are able to go get a star or sign Donovan Mitchell, or trade for, well, I guess Donovan Mitchell's two off-seasons from now, trade for Donovan Mitchell, because that's still, it seems like they're not done. It seems like there's another move to be made. So I think that if there is another move to be made, then this was a smart play, because OG Ananobi just kind of fits whatever star you want. Like, he's just going to defend at a high level, he's going to shoot the three ball well, he can kind of create a little bit, but like, not really. He's more of like, just a, you know, he shoots threes in defense, and attacks the hoop well, off-cutting. Also, I don't think giving up R.J. Barrett is that big of a deal, even though he definitely could flourish in Toronto and just a different change of scenery where he's not behind a very ball-dominant guy in Jalen Brunson and and Julius Randle to keep that uh, a fact. I assume Pascal Siakam gets moved, so this would make R.J. Barrett and Scotty Barnes kind of like the duo. Uh, but I think it's more of Emmanuel Quickly, right? Like I think that's where Knicks fans are a little bit more upset of. Like Quickly's ceiling is probably higher than, um, than R.J. Barrett's. Is. I think RJ Barrett, we kind of just know he is like he's a good player. He has 20 points in the NBA. Like that is not something that anybody can do. But I think quickly ceiling is a bit more exciting for Knicks fans and just NBA fans in general. So I think that's where people are a little bit more upset. But also, I, I, you have to respect the Knicks because they made it clear they weren't going to pay quickly, whatever. He, he was, he's a restricted free agent this offseason, right? Probably, if I had to predict, probably going to be somewhere in that 23 to $28 million range annually at least starting off it's a lot of money to give a guy who you don't really want to start next to Jalen Brunson like elite six man probably the best in the NBA if he is coming off of the bench but you're not paying that guy to that guy to come off the bench like that your his money is a starter worth money and he is a, he is a starting caliber player but next to Jalen Brunson it just didn't make a lot of sense so now he can be this shot creating smaller guard in Toronto a, a, a spot that Toronto has not had uh, you know, since losing Fred Van Vliet, since losing Kyle Lowry, they kind of, add, but it, but he brings a different aspect than those guys had. So I'm excited to see how quickly and Barrett both do in Toronto. I'm excited to see what moves are made next because it seems like this is just the start for both teams. This seems clear that, okay, the Raptors probably are going to trade Siakam now unless they like this current core, which is a world where they, they do. There's a world where they think like quickly can progress enough and RJ can be better here. That those two with Scotty and Pascal and Jakob Pertl holding it down low with a bench of, you know, Dennis Schroeder, Gary Trent, whoever else, like that team can be competitive. There's a word where they believe that. I mean, it is, it's Masai Ujiri at the end of the day. Like he wants to compete. He doesn't want to blow it up. And maybe that's why, you know, we thought that it was going to be a lot of picks or whatever in exchange for, for OG Ananobi. That was always the rumor. It seemed like the Pacers and the Grizzlies both threw like a little bit of a bag uh, picks-wise and they declined. 
maybe this was his plan all along to get guys that can come in and compete for them. So we'll see what happens with that. But I, I think this is a good trade for both sides. I think it's fun. I think if I had to say someone won, I would agree that Toronto probably like won this trade. But I think it just we have to see what happens next. You know, I'm interested to see what happens next with the Knicks. Quentin Grimes also maybe this means he has a little bit of a bigger role. Um, I assume him or DiVincenzo will start next to OG, Randall, and Hartenstein. Obviously, Mitchell Robinson is out for the year. This A little bit of extra center depth with Precious Oshawa. You'll definitely take that uh, if you're the Knicks. But yeah, I think it's a fun trade. Uh, I don't think it's like a crazy good trade or anything. I just think it's fun, which is, at the end of the day, cool. You know, that's what you want. I was going to talk a little bit about the NFL playoff picture, but the games are going on right now, and so it doesn't really matter. Um what I say because it's just by the time you're listening to this everything else is have, would have happened so I think that's going to wrap up this week's episode like I said I really don't know what episode is going to come next I'm going to have to try to do some sort of game Jeopardy 25 words or less a feud episode of that coming this week probably um, but I will let you guys know of course go follow me on Twitter if not thank you guys for listening Detroit versus everybody baby peace